Sonia and I are at the European Think Tank Conference this week, which is hosted by the Think Tank Lab in Berlin. Uh, yesterday, Sonia schlepped halfway across the world from Argentina to get here. Her connecting flight was cancelled. Her baggage was lost when I first saw her. Uh, she hadn't slept for two days, and frankly, <laughs> she looked like she was going insane. Sonia, have you had a good night's sleep? Are you feeling yes, better? Yes, I, I have. And uh, actually, I got very much invigorated after listening to the keynote by, by our guest today. So maybe we should introduce him. So our keynote speaker here at the conference is Jeff Mulgan, who joins us today. Hello, Jeff. Hi there. Now, uh, this is the first time I've met Jeff, uh, but that's a bit weird uh, because our paths have almost crossed quite a few times in my career. Uh, and I think he might have been hiding from me uh, until today. Uh, so apologies, listeners, for I'm going to give you a slightly longer than usual preamble, but it is a little bit of a story. So I started my career in the late 90s working in a political bookshop called Politicos, which was in Westminster at the time. And Jeff had written a fantastic book called Connexity, and we sold bucket loads uh, of that book. It was one of the must-read books of the new Labour era. Uh, Jeff was at that time the director of Demos, a leading centre-left think tank in the UK, uh, and Demos was my first client when I started working as a freelance designer. Uh, I've designed a stack of Jeff Mulgan think tank pamphlets, uh, and later when I started Soapbox, uh, one of the first websites that we built was for the Young Foundation, uh, which is a kind of community research and innovation foundation uh, where Jeff was the director. Somehow, uh, once again, we never managed to meet. Uh, later still, uh, Soapbox worked on a number of projects with Nesta, the UK's National Endowment for Science, Technology and the Arts. Guess who was the CEO? It was Jeff. Uh, I think I saw him once at their offices, um, but we didn't meet. Uh, finally, last year, I had a really lovely interaction uh, with discussing digital communications with some of Jeff's colleagues at the International Public Policy uh, Observatory. Uh, and between all of that, Jeff successfully dodged me with senior jobs in the UK government. Uh, he even fled for a time to Australia to work with the government there. It's fair to say uh, that Jeff has had a lot of important uh, and very interesting jobs, and he's written a lot of absolutely brilliant books. But we've never met until today. I've caught up with him. Hello, and welcome to Meet the Influentials. They're influential, they're intellectuals. Yep, you've got it. They are the Influentuals. This is a podcast about research communications. I'm John Schwartz. I'm the CEO of Soapbox. We're a design agency working with a lot of the world's leading think tanks, academic institutions and NGOs. And I'm Sonia Chalfin, Director of Sociopublico, a strategy and communication studio for complex ideas. We're on a mission to find out the best ways to communicate knowledge, ideas and evidence. So each episode, we are meeting a leading influential who can help us on that mission. What do you mean when you talk about social imagination in your book? How do you define it? The reason I, I wrote this book was a sense there was a gap. There was a sort of missing perspective, um, probably all over the world. And this applies to the think tank world and it applies to governments too that they're often quite good at thinking incrementally, a policy for next month or next year. But if you ask people, where are we headed? Where should our societies be going in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years? People found, find it quite easy to picture all sorts of apocalyptic disasters, ecological disasters, political disasters, war, etc. 
And they can often quite easily imagine technological futures because our screens are often full of pictures of AI, robots, drones, you name it, uh, transforming our worlds. But in terms of a positive picture where we might want to go with health systems or welfare or democracy, the family, anything like that, people really struggle to picture uh, a better possibilities. So I became convinced we had a crisis of imagination and that this was part of perhaps a wider malaise in our societies, deep-rooted pessimism about where, our, where our, our, our world is headed, big majorities of parents expecting their children to be worse off than them. And we did a little poll here with the think tankers, and they too are basically pessimistic uh, about the future. And my fear is we've overshot. There are very good reasons to be quite pessimistic, you know, about climate change, about war, about uh, political populism. But my fear is it can become self-reinforcing. If we assume things will get worse, then maybe they will get worse. And we need to be working harder, I think, at the really positive, creative imagination to generate possibilities for the future. Practical, I hope, <laughs> plausible, uh, inspiring possibilities about how our societies might be better a generation or now from, from here. Uh, and in the book, I tried to look at the history uh, because, in a way, the current situation is quite unusual. It makes us very different from the 1960s or the 1890s or the 1840s, all sorts of past periods when most people actually had quite clear pictures of a positive possible future. They might have been completely wrong and deluded, but there was a sense that progress was, was possible, and that then inspired all sorts of reforming, innovating energy, and that's a little bit what I'm trying to get back to. Jeff, you, you mentioned the idea of having generative ideas. So is, is that a solution you are proposing to try to, to imagine a different future? And how does these generative ideas work? So in the book, I look at one obvious place where people think about the future, which is utopian writings. And there have been mm -hmm. utopias since uh, Thomas More in the 16th century, even before him. There were feminist utopias from Christine Pizan in the 15th century, Plato. And in the 19th century, there was an incredibly fertile field of utopian writing, bestsellers on a future world where there'd be no private property, where we might be able to press buttons in our homes and music would come out of the walls. Uh, and then as recently as the 60s, lots of feminist utopias were written. But that whole tradition has stopped. And although utopian writing is, is interesting and helps you think in new ways, I became convinced that The problem with utopias is they were too complete, too finished. They were just one person's picture. And in a weird way, disempowering. Because what do you do if you're a reader of someone else's utopia? You just say, okay, let's have that. Uh, and if you look at the history of the last two or three hundred years, actually much more influence has come from what I call generative ideas. Often quite simple ideas, like the idea that every human has, has rights. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. An idea which then you can extend to other, uh, other fields from... Uh, sexuality to animals to, to, to nature, or more recent ideas like the circular economy, which I started working on more than 30 years ago. It was then quite a, a vague concept. Let's move from a linear economy where we just bury everything in the ground to one where uh, everything is reused, we don't use so much energy, it's much more materially economical. And it's taken 30 years to take that generative idea and make it part of everyday reality in glass or paper or, or plastics. And I give a lot of examples of that kind. And perhaps what we need now 
is a mixture of really inspiring generative ideas, which may start off quite simple. And then the work of think tanks and the work of society and innovators is to flesh them out, to turn them into practical experiments, to apply them in real domains. And then you get a kind of feedback loop as the ideas move from what I call thin to thick. Mm. Uh, feminism is another a good example. In the 18th and 19th century, there were lots of feminist ideas, but they were quite simple in a way or quite generic. And it took a huge amount of work in the last 50 years to turn that into to laws, practices within companies, new norms within the home and the family. And so many other fields have turned feminism from quite thin to, to thick. Uh, and that's what uh, it was a, a way of thinking about change, this, mm. this movement from the generative to the fully embodied in life. And, and have you found uh, an insight into, into how or why these particular ideas like human rights or feminism have actually become thick and why others haven't or so that we can try to think how to create new generative ideas now i mean it's partly work <laughs> some people work <laughs> at it it doesn't happen automatically or, or, or organically uh, and this is why i think think tanks are so important there is you know hard mental labor involved in turning as i say and i like an idea about equality into legislation which then can be implemented in thousands of businesses Uh, across the world. There's no shortcuts to that. It requires investment in, in resources, in thought, in intellectual labor, uh, if you like. Obviously, the ideas have to be attractive. <laughs> They have to be <laughs> sticky. Uh, and sometimes the ideas come very much from, almost from the top down, from, um, from governments. So tax is an interesting example where you know, the idea of income taxes is a really interesting one which spread very rapidly across the world from government to government because mm -hmm. it was a great way of getting money. Uh, the other extreme is something like veganism, invented in the 1940s in Scotland by you know, one guy, essentially, which then very slowly spread in the 50s and 60s and now is sort of taking off. So in a city like Berlin, I guess, what, 10, 20% of people are probably now vegan. Yeah. Um, you know, but that's been very much a, a bottom-up process. And in the book, I try to look at these very different dynamics. Some, as I say, top-down, some bottom-up, some maybe much more driven by NGOs or businesses. It's, a, it's not surprisingly a very mm. complicated picture how change happens. You're, you're talking about generative ideas which are very sort of positive. Do you think that... Can we have, are there negative generative ideas as well? Can there be negative ideas that kind of you know, catch on as well. Nationalism, you know, that, that, that can follow the same process and become over, over time something that we all think. Uh, absolutely. And, and one I mentioned in my talk here was the incredible spread uh, of the idea that um, the mainstream media are essentially a conspiracy. Mm. So mm. many of my neighbours when I live in yeah. England are absolutely convinced that uh, climate change is a hoax, the pandemic is a hoax, you can't basically believe anything on the BBC mm -hmm. or anyone else because they are part of some big conspiracy. And that's an idea which has sort of moved from perhaps the Trumpian extremes of the US to be pretty mainstream in much yeah. of, of Europe now and makes... The rest of everyday politics and progress really quite hard. Yeah. If very large minorities, that's the sort of that's the mental model which which they start. What's the what's the failure of politics um, to prevent those kind of negative um, generative ideas spreading and the positive ones not not spreading? What are, what are we doing wrong, or what are politicians doing wrong? I don't particularly blame politicians for that. I mean, you can blame <laughs> almost anything. <Yeah. laughs> They're the easiest group to blame for all the ills of the world. 
Um, I'd actually say as much of the blame is with the public. You know, let's say, let's admit it. Sometimes citizens mm-hmm. have their their responsibility to uh, to a, a healthy democracy as much as the politicians, and that's the argument I regularly have with my my neighbours. But of course, social media, the design principles of social media. Uh, a huge part of the story of why these ideas have spread so fast in the last 10 years, essentially. And I showed various graphs on what's called the spread of cognitive distortions in our culture, which really does begin in the 2000s and then accelerates in the 2010s. Can, can, you, can we stop there and, and discuss that a little bit? Because I, I thought it was fascinating. You, you actually jo- showed some statistics showing that the books we write over the last uh, couple of uh, decades have become much more exaggerated and, and um, have, uh, d- presenting disastrous ideas of the future. Uh, yeah. And this is based on research, actually. It was surprising to me. Yeah, it was an enormous piece of research looking at literally every book published in English, Spanish and German for the last 100, I think, since 1850, and then analyzing almost the sentiment within those books using complicated algorithms and showing these sort of extreme catastrophizing uh, sentiments don't change much in the last hundred years but then around 2000 the curves all spike Mm. sharply upwards as if the world is going a little bit crazy and they call the researchers call this cognitive distortions you can see it also other research which I was the, the, the slides after which I didn't show looking at click-through patterns in social mm-hmm. media we know, we know very well you're much more likely to get click-through if you have an extreme over-the-top catastrophizing message on Twitter X or Facebook than if you don't so mm-hmm. in a way it's not surprising we've created this massive infrastructure of thought which happens to be designed in ways to generate mass-scale cognitive distortions And the spread of these ideas like the conspiracy theories or the mainstream media as, as villains. Or indeed, I think it's 17% of Americans who believe in the paedophile lizard ring running the country. Right. You know? yeah. <laughs> the world has gone slightly slightly mad. Yeah, I mean, but and it's it quite hard for... Poli- I, I blame politicians for not having regulated the internet, mm-hmm. not having attended 20 years ago to the risk that the internet in its then forms was going to spread lies more than truths, was going to undermine childhood, was going to undermine democracy. And exactly 20 years ago, I did a proposal to Google about how they could adapt search engines uh, in relation to truth, which they, of course, completely ignored. And I I think historians will think the world got some things really badly wrong in the early 2000s. The tech industry was very influential and governments were terrified of doing anything to constrain them. And at the moment, we're in a little bit of a similar situation around AI. Politicians who don't really understand technology, slightly terrified about doing anything to constrain the power of the big platforms. And of course, the big platforms, you know, who I know pretty well, um, they are not very well placed to self-govern. This is not their (laughs) their superpower. Mm -hmm. They're They're not good at seeing the downsides of their own technologies because you wouldn't expect them to. And, and you see people saying that we, we lost that first battle to the algorithms and now what are we going to be doing about the new ones, the, mm-hmm. the new uh, algorithms based on AI? So what do you think about that? Are we still on time to, to rethink the way we, we relate ourselves to, to AI and, and, and these new technologies? Not really, no. Um, uh, and here, 
you could blame not only the politicians, but actually also the think tank world there. I uh, think seven years ago published a proposal for AI regulation, how mm -hmm. you might organize it, what it might do in everything from finance to cars to welfare. And I was at the time hoping for lots of people to shoot me down. So you're right here, you're yeah. wrong there, here's a much better solution. Instead, there was nothing, a complete <laughs> void. Yeah. This was 2015, 2016. By the end of the decade, Brussels started getting serious about it and worked on what became the, the AI Act. China became quite serious about it and eventually set up its cyberspace um, agency. But there's still an incredible dearth of good options out there, what to do about AI. It's a field dominated by, in my view, a fairly cynical play by the industry to create lots of centers of AI ethics, yeah. which would worry about issues in 50 years' time. Well, they got on making money today. It was partly well-intentioned, but a lot of it, that was very, very cynical. Um, and early this year, um, because the question of global governance of AI has become much more live, especially since ChatGPT mm -hmm. came on stream a, a year ago, uh, I propose with some colleagues as a minimum that the world should create what we call an IPCC for AI. That is to say mm -hmm. a global observatory would at which would at least analyze the trends, the risks, keep a record of key incidents, uh, do an annual gathering to discuss what's, what needs to be done and provide national governments with help on what their regulation should be because most national governments have none of this capability at all. I was worried we were getting nowhere and then just this week, in fact, in the papers today, there's a piece by Eric Schmidt and others. He used to be chair and CEO of Google proposing exactly what we had recommended. Mm. The UK is hosting a summit at the end of October and it looks like they may well set up something fairly similar to this. As I say, I think this is a minimum necessary step, not a sufficient step. But without at least an observatory to keep track of the facts on AI, it's very hard to have smart governance on it. But I think future historians will be a lit, little bit astonished that the world of governance and policy was so slow to mm. engage with this enormously powerful technology. So it seems your generative idea is coming to reality in this case. Well, AI is sometimes called a, a GPT in another sense, a general purpose technology. It is something you can apply to absolutely everything, mm -hmm. you know, from democracy to, um, to driving a, a car. So it is the, almost the ultimate generative idea itself, <laughs> but we probably need some generative governance ideas on how do you make it transparent, accountable, explainable um, to the billions of people whose lives will be affected by it or are already being affected by it. But are you worried that we've missed the boat already? I mean, you were talking about this in, 20, in 2015 and now certainly with my clients, I see them piling in onto this issue right now. Um, is, it, is, that, is it too little, too late? It's never too late, but there's a, there's a very simple um, step which still hasn't happened. So one of the things I, I, I've published a few times this year is in some ways a very simple matrix. It says, if you really want to govern AI, um, these are all the kind of different kinds of risk which are involved in AI. They range from bias and discrimination to chaos and you know, uh, uh, you know, out of control warfare. Here are the domains we should be worried mm -hmm. about, which include finance, education, health, politics, media, and so on. And here are the possible governance responses. And it's a very, very complicated picture because you've almost got a three-dimensional cube 
with probably a thousand cells, each requiring a different response. And yet the debate, if you read the newspapers, is still incredibly simplistic, Mm -hmm. generic solutions, because the debate hasn't even got to this basic point of understanding the many dimensions of of the question. And I'm, I'm again, slightly astonished that in 2023, we're still seeing these very, very vague and generic proposals being made by the supposed experts Mm -hmm. in this field. My hope is by 24, we may be filling out the cells in this diagram. So what could be a harm in schools? What might we do to respond to it? What might be a a problem in welfare allocations using algorithms? uh, And what might be the Mm. governance responses Mm. to that? And so on and so forth. And in a way, that's how we handle finance. If you look at the governance of money, which we've got centuries of experience of. We have very, very complicated governance of pensions and insurance and equities and loans and credit, often with multiple different institutions because the issues are so complex. And my prediction is in five or ten years, the world of AI will be much more like finance in that respect Mm. rather than these very simplistic one-dimensional solutions which are still being banded around. I I love that you mentioned complexity because uh, both John and I, uh, we say that we work to communicate complex ideas and people tend to think that when you face a complex idea, what you need to do is to simplify it. It's like, oh, you are the ones who simplify complex ideas. And, and, and we think that that's not the case. When you have a very complex idea, it cannot, just cannot be simplified, but you just need to really understand it. And by the way, I would love to visualize, that, to do that 3D visualization you are imagining on, on AI, and I can see our teams doing that. So um, you were uh, talking throughout your book and, and yesterday about imagination. Is, in a way, imagination, narrative, stories, uh, a way to fill the gap between complexity and understanding without simplification? Or, or how do you see that, that tension between complexity and the fact that we need to really understand these ideas if we want to act on them? It's a very good question. and I don't have a full answer to it. I mean, what I do try and explore in the book is the relationship between, as I said before, some often quite simple generative ideas, which then become very complex mm-hmm. as they're applied uh, in, in the world. So that's one side of this. As an example, I'm, I'm part of an EU project at the moment on whole-of-government innovation, where we're going around EU members looking at things like decarbonisation strategies. Those start with a very simple idea. We've got to get carbon out of our economy. But they quickly become very, very complicated when you're looking at steel and cars and buses and homes and so mm-hmm. on. And, and there's, no, there's, no, you, there's no point simplifying, because if you don't get complex you're not going to deal with the issues. Similarly, as you say, stories are how our brains work. Sometimes they can be very dangerous. Sometimes they can be quite enabling. And they're useful for imagination. They're useful for thinking ahead. But they're ladders you need to then throw away. Because a story is just a, a starting point mm. of then the detailed design uh, the design work. Um, and I mentioned yeah, yesterday the field of care for the elderly, which is going to be an enormously important field for Europe and China and Japan and Korea in the next 30, 40 years. All of, all of us are getting older. <laughs> Our societies are getting older. There'll be many more people needing, needing care. 
You can tell a negative story about that, the demographic time bomb, how this will destroy our welfare states and we'll all be miserable. Uh, a country like Korea, there'll be, I think, you know, 16 grandchildren for every 100, hmm. you know, grandparents, as it were. So no one to look after them. That's a, a miserable story. Or you could tell a much more positive story about the incredible boon of longer lives, which <laughs> we've never had in human history, mm -hmm. which can be, so long as people can stay fit and healthy, they can have fun, you know, into their 90s, they can, you know, join new universities in their 80s. Uh, there, there's an extraordinarily positive potential story around reimagining care. And I was showing some of the, the data on thinking about care in relation to um, things like sociability and mutuality, which open up a very different storyline mm -hmm. there from the the purely sort of financial welfare story. But again, it's a starting point. The real mm. work then comes uh, in thinking through what mm -hmm. does that actually mean in a care home or in my street or in my, my town. And one of the things I've been trying to persuade some places to do um, is sort of museums of the future. There are a handful of these things called museums of the future, but I, I think almost every medium-sized town or city should have a place where you can go and interact with possible futures, like the future of care, mm -hmm. where if you're a 15-year-old, you can even try the different things out. You can play with the technologies and try and imagine yourself in the year 2080 or the year 2100, which, you know, they may only be 80 then or whatever, uh, um, and, and use that to help them in some, some ways get a sense of agency. This is something they can control, they can shape. It's not just something which will happen to you. Yeah. There's a, a wonderful museum in Rio de Janeiro I wanted to mention on the future, which I think if anyone who's listening is around Brazil and in Rio de Janeiro, you can find one of these yeah. museums. So Rio has one right on the, the, the sea. Um, Dubai has a newly opened Museum of the Future, which is now the top tourist attraction in Dubai, mm -hmm. partly because it's got a beautifully Instagrammable uh, sort of building, uh, Barcelona, Berlin. There's a number of well, others. Yeah, we have Futurium here in Berlin. Yeah. Yes. So they're all they're all quite small, but of the thousands and thousands of museums around the world focused on the past, there's still only mm. a handful focused on the future. One of the things that you spoke about yesterday that really kind of struck me was this relationship between politics and practice. And you talked a lot about you talked about being an engineer, and you talked about you know the the, the detail of actually putting things into practice and how we can kind of join those kind of things up. You also spoke about new towns and the ways that, 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 that policy and practice come together in terms of building communities. You know, that question of how we live and how we can actually put that into practice uh, in architecture and building new towns. I wonder if you can kind of expand on, on that and how we can kind of bring politics and practice a little bit uh, better together. Yeah, I guess uh, the, the older I get, the more I almost respect take seriously the how of things mm, as well as the yeah. what. And this is probably a bit of a, sometimes a challenge for the think tank world where if your output is a book or a pamphlet which just says what should happen, often you don't pay much attention to the, the how. But all my experience in governments is that the how is hugely important. Yeah. Ideas can go horribly wrong from the, the page <laughs> to the reality. They can work beautifully in theory and terribly in, 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 in practice. And so, always in my work in governments, I've tried to ensure we have frontline practitioners in policy teams, mm -hmm. for example, which may seem obvious, but I would say 95% of decisions made in national governments have no one in the room 
with any direct experience of the thing they're talking about yeah. in its frontline reality. And you, you can probably say that of think tanks too. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's kind of the, the way the cognitive elites work. And so I've become more and more obsessed with implementation as well as imagination. I'm now in an engineering department at a university, in part because I like the way engineering sees these as mutually reinforcing, that you can be you know, incredibly imaginative about a new rocket or a new bridge or whatever, But if you don't implement it really well, <laughs> the rocket blows up, the bridge collapses. And it's kind of obvious you have to do, do both of these. So I would encourage you know, anyone working in the space of ideas and policy to, almost to, to, to learn the habits and the skills of the practical, of the front line, yeah. as well as the skills of abstraction and analysis mm -hmm. uh, and so on. I think it's much more fun working that way. Yeah. And in my own work, I always try and regularly sort of, um, you know, visit, talk to people, spend time in places doing, <laughs> doing stuff rather than just pontificating yeah. uh, about it. I mean, my, the UK has been a particularly bad example recently of a series of governments with no sense of implementation yeah. at all yeah. and a, a serious decline of capacity to do stuff yeah. well. And, and yeah. similarly, we, you, you spoke very briefly about the, the arts yesterday and the importance of the arts. And I, you know, again, I think we're sort of perhaps harking back to, an, to a past where you know, maybe you know, we're thinking about people had more imagination. But I think back to politicians like, like Dennis Healy or even, even Ted Heath You know, politicians seemed to have hinterland. It was called hinterland in those days, meaning that they had a bunch of other stuff that they were interested in. Have we gone too far down the professionalization of the political class? Do they need to get out there and see some, see some theatre? Play the organ like Ted Heath used to play, or, you know, do something like that. I mean, I think there's definitely a general trend to over-professionalization in political careers mm. where, uh, you know, many people ruling countries have basically not really done anything else. Maybe like Macron, they were briefly an investment banker. Uh, uh, and so their, 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 their worldview is very much shaped by, by the bubble, the mm. bubble of politics. And uh, I prefer political systems which are bringing in people from, from the arts or from business or from science into political parties. And I think a really good party is constantly trying to refresh itself Again, in the UK, it's definitely got worse. Both the main parties are much less diverse yeah. cognitively yeah. than they were a generation or two ago and probably less talented as well. Um, how the arts fits in is quite complicated and this yeah. is a little diversion. I wrote a, it was originally a chapter in, in the book Another World is Possible, which I then turned into a whole little book on its own because I got so fascinated with the role of art in political and social imagination. And I sort of concluded, to, to cut a long story short, that the arts aren't very good at, at telling us, you know, where will our society be in 100 years? What will our welfare state look like? What would a parliament look like or a neighborhood? Uh, even though artists sometimes told themselves that they were the sort of trailblazers, <laughs> the pioneers of the future, that's complete rubbish, actually. And they yeah. never, they've never done that. But what they do do is open up our thinking, our feeling, our, our sense of possibility in what I call tangential ways. Yeah. They do that in, in, in weird ways. So that's why I'd always like to have artists part of any project, let's say thinking about the future of a city, thinking about a, you know, a circular economy or the future of care, mm. 
involve the artist. Don't ask them to describe the future, yeah. but get them to do things. Use, maybe it's using virtual reality to feel what's it like to be a tree. Yeah. <laughs> or you know, what might it like, be like to be experiencing um, advanced dementia. You know, there's, there's so many ways the arts can open up our, our possibilities. And one of my, my current um, obsessions is the design of new public institutions, because mm -hmm. I think we're missing many of the institutions we need for the next... 10 or 20 years, and there's many reasons for that. And one thing the arts can do is just literally give us the mental pictures of institutions mm -hmm. which mm. aren't just blocky pyramids or sort of organograms like mm. you'll get from a management consultancy, but maybe more like mycelium. Yeah. Or like um, you know, like networks or, or, or shoals of fish. You know, nature and arts can give us very different sort of pictures of what organizations could be much more fluid, much flatter, much more adaptable, much yeah. more intelligent. And it's probably quite hard to get that. That's is where engineering perhaps reaches its limits and needs to be fed by the arts mm -hmm. to open up our, our capacities to think. Because, yeah, some people talk about adjacent places and the arts seems to be all around us, not connected to what we do in politics or in thinking and, and the intellectual world, but not... Uh, being part of it, but just close to it, closer enough for us to ignite other ideas, maybe. Um, yeah, and Europe has great traditions of political movements running, having very live cultural life. I mean, the SPD mm -hmm. here in Germany, uh, Pichi in, in Italy, um, uh, but also some of the nationalist parties. They, you know, they, they thought politics should be constantly interacting mm -hmm. with theatre and music and festivals and so on. And it's quite sad how those traditions with the slight exception of the Greens, have yeah. largely gone. So yeah. they're much more boring, actually, political parties than <laughs> <Yeah>. they were <laughs> you know, back in the, you know, I guess, the 50s or whatever. Jeff, uh, you, you were just saying that you are thinking about the, the new institutions we need, and throughout all your work you've been uh, proposing new ideas, bold ideas. How have you become an influential, which is the name of our podcast, in the, in the sense that you are influencing the public debate with your ideas, your intellectual ideas? Do you have a method for bringing your ideas into reality, as you have done throughout your career? Not at all. It's completely, <laughs> <laughs> it's completely random. We were looking for the recipe here. So you don't have it. <laughs> Not really, no. I mean, I, I, as you can tell, I've got an interest in, in ideas and, and creativity. Um, and often you find you can have a fantastic idea, but there's no demand for it, or the time isn't right. Mm -hmm. So I guess a lot of the work of people like me is trying to be bridges, brokers, where you always have one foot in the camp of the people who might have the power to act, which could be ministers or mm -hmm. mayors or what have you, and being really attuned to what they need, what they want, and another foot in, as it were, the camp of generating the options, generating the, the ideas. Um, so one of the things I work on now in the UK, for example, you mentioned at the beginning, the International Public Policy Observatory. We're a kind of broker. We work with the now four governments of the UK, understanding what they, they need, <laughs> and then trying to generate either evidence or ideas to, to meet it. But as I say, often you think you'll have what you think is the perfect answer and no one wants it. So like I mentioned earlier, you know, seven years ago, AI regulators. I thought mm. it was obvious that's what the world needed. No one wanted one. So I was mm. completely wasting my time uh, at that point. Um, and now one of the things um, working on with these governments, for example, is on coping with much less cash. 
how do you meet social needs if resources are much mm -hmm. more constrained? Now, that's quite a difficult question. Academics aren't very good at answering it, and it needs a lot of lateral creativity uh, to answer it. Or another one is mental health. Mm. Um, all around the world, we have very powerful institutions around physical health, health ministries, hospitals, and so on, but usually much less organization of mental health services. They're lower status, less well-organized, much less evidence, much less data. So the question, how in the next 10 years do we build up mental health services to be on a par with physical health services is the kind of thing which I like working on because there actually is some demand. <laughs> a lot yes. of people with power want mm -hmm. answers to that question. There aren't actually very good answers yet. So how can we better mobilize brain power to give them options? Mm. It, you mentioned yesterday that uh, you need to have, this is something that people doing creative work knows, you need to have a southern idea so that you can then eliminate all the bad ones and, and just keep the good ones. Um, and what you're saying right now about the timing, it seems to suggest that maybe we need to be exploring uh, very different ideas at the same time for very different domains just to see which one works, which one get the attention of policymakers or decision makers is could that be a, a and, and if I think about think tanks for instance we tend to be uh, just picking two or three ideas for working on them for several years instead of trying many uh, and then wait to see if there's that they, if they gain some some traction so do you think that maybe this can help yeah I totally agree with you and I think this is a very non-obvious point actually Uh, which has two parts to it. I mean, one is just a point about creativity. It's very well understood in some of the arts and design and science that if you want to have good ideas, have lots and lots of ideas and throw away the bad ones. Uh, Thomas Edison's invention of the light bulb is the most famous example where he tried 10,000 different materials before he mm -hmm. found the one that worked. Uh, and I mentioned yesterday this wonderful film of Picasso painting a painting where he just tries so many different things before he gets to the form he wants. And that's a very difficult habit for people working in policy, mm -hmm. whether in governments or universities or think tanks. Mm -hmm. As you say, they tend to try and have two or three options when they should have 300 options. Yeah. And it's only when you've probably got to number 150, you're getting to actually really interesting options, which might be that the, the great one you will end up Uh, needing. So it's partly just a matter of creative practice getting to do that. But as you say, it's also a matter of timing. You can never know exactly which of your great ideas mm -hmm. will fit the moment, the zeitgeist, the demand, the need. So if you're a think tank, better to have quite a big repertoire, a menu mm, of yeah. ideas sort of in your back pocket. So you're ready when maybe an event happens, there's a change, there's a new need. And you can say, ah, we've got just yeah. the idea for you. Yeah, and the institutional memory to be able to leverage those ideas and that expertise, um, you know, when it comes up. Um, Jeff, we're going to let you get back to the conference now. I, I, I hope, given your keynote yesterday, that they're all out there generating loads of brilliant uh, ideas, generating loads of utopias. If they're not, I'll be sorely disappointed. Um, thanks for joining us. I'm really glad that I finally uh, managed to catch up with you. Um, <laughs> So, for the ending of each episode of this podcast, what we do is we like to create a little space for our listeners to think about what they've heard. It's not the call to action that we as communicators so often give people. It's the call to think. Um, so, we're going to leave everyone with two minutes of ambient sound, just some nice background uh, sounds to give them space to think quietly. 
about what they've learned from you today, maybe start to form an opinion, maybe have 300 ideas, maybe <laughs> formulate a utopia, um, and uh, we'll invite them to share that using the hashtag Influential. So, Jeff, uh, what sounds shall we listen to when we think about what we've learned from you? So just one point before I answer your question. I love that you do this because I think silence is hugely important in life. I've been working with cities on how do you create more spaces of silence. This mm. is a big design task for, for cities. And there's quite strong evidence that for generating ideas, brainstorms are actually not a very efficient way of doing <laughs> mm -hmm. it. Going for a walk, having a bath, sitting in silence is often a better way of having good ideas. And I guess my favorite ambient sound is just that of, of trees, of woods and forests gently blowing in the background. The trees which sort of last forever yeah. and will last long beyond us, but also have this wonderful sort of flexibility of adapting to the changing winds. That's maybe also a metaphor for what think tanks have to do. Wonderful. We will leave you all with the sound of some beautiful trees to think wonderful, wonderful ideas. Thank you, everyone. You've been listening to Meet the Influentials with me, John Schwartz, and my co-host, Sonia Jalpin. Production was by Lara sheshati Praise. Post-production was by Dario Jalpin. This podcast is produced by Soapbox and Socio Publico, two design and communications agencies working at the intersection of research and social progress. You can learn more about us at designbysoapbox.com and sociopublico.com. And feel free to contact us with ideas for future episodes. Just use the email addresses you'll find on our website. Thanks for listening.